Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, buckle in for a cracking conversation on how three CMOs across three hugely diverse sectors are addressing the strategic challenge underway in how they define consumer tribes and engage them with new products and services and address environmental and social shifts from the consumer or customer, which goes deep into the supply chain to make it all happen. It's a really interesting conversation. So on the mics today is Michael Scott, CMO at Ripcurl, Anthony Cruz, CMO at Colgate Palmolive, Catherine Illy, General Manager, Consumer Marketing at Destination New South Wales, and Ali Tilling, Chief Strategy Officer at VML YNR. I'm looking forward to this one. So welcome to you all. Um, to Ali Tilling first, I think let's start with the big picture on this uh, before we dig into some really interesting programs each of these marketers are, are working on as we speak. Um, now, you argue that the way we've traditionally or the way that the industry has traditionally defined consumer segments and tribes is shifting quite significantly, Ali. Um, how about you unpack that a bit before we get into the detail and welcome? Thanks, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think traditionally we've really thought about de- demographics in how we think about and un- um, segment different customers and consumers. And I think obviously there's still a place for that. You know, demographics are kind of a part of what what defines us and what helps us group different consumers. But I think what we've really seen, and it's pretty exciting actually, is a real shift to start consumers starting to think about a lot more and crucially choose brands a lot more based on their values. The thing that sort of really excites me about this is when you think about that word values, the first place that you often go, particularly in marketing, is kind of to a place of real sort of earnestness. Right. right? Yes. So it can kind of be this thing of like, well, if I've got to have a value, like it's going to be really, you know, lofty and, and all that. Yes. But actually values don't need to be, don't need to be that. I mean, certainly there's nothing wrong with that. But the way that we're seeing um, even some of those more lofty, more earnest values come to life is in a lot more kind of pragmatic, humorous, fun, everyday kind of ways. And there's also much simpler values that unite us, like things that we like doing, things that we enjoy, things that kind of bring us together through community, locally, globally. And I think everyone on today has has some really interesting things to say about that. So I'm looking forward to digging yeah, into well, it. Yeah, well, let's go on to that because yeah. you, you did write it. Uh, Michael Scott, we'll start with you first. Um, yours is an interesting one, right? Um, essentially, you've got one, we talked about demographics and tribes. You've got one surfer tribe. It's almost identical anywhere around the world, I think. But there's change of foot with a global membership program that, that you're doing at Rip Curl um, that kind of shakes up what the company's done since it was founded, I don't know, hundreds of years ago when the surfers were, you know, long boards that were 70 foot long, I think, Michael, or something. It's quite a change, I think, from what Rip Curl's been doing. Give us a sense on, on what you're up to there and why, and, and welcome to you too. Um, Thanks so much for having me, Paul. Great to meet you and um, spend time with you today. Yeah, I mean, Rip Curl was founded only 52 years ago, although that's a, that's a long time, um, and it was founded... That's 1969, that's when I was born, just saying. I'm old. I mean, well, I'm only younger than you. So it was founded by two guys in Torquay, Victoria, in the cold cold climb down here, and um, but over 52 years it's grown to be found sort of in digital or physical presence in the far corners around the world, and... One of the really interesting things for me coming to the business, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a newbie, I've only been here for two years, whereas most people within Rip Curl have been around for 10, 15, 20 years, which is amazing in itself. But 
the common thing about our our tribe or our consumers is that they they just have a passion for the water, the ocean, the outdoors, and and surfing, of course. And it was fascinating um, doing a sort of an, an audit qualitatively and quantitatively around the regions and, and countries. And and the thing that was most common and most the same was was simply that they just love surfing, um, and it makes the job um, that we do uh, a hell of a lot easier. And interestingly, in the surf industry, as as old as it is, um, and as much as it's it's experienced a real renaissance over the last few years with COVID, there being no structured sport, people have gone back to the water. One thing we noticed was that there's actually not a formal or informal community at play, and so we identified a pretty major opportunity for us to build an ambition of building the largest and most engaged surfing community in the world, which is what our new membership program has been designed to do. And, you know, there's thousands of membership programs throughout industries and categories world, world round. And one of the, the lovely things about starting something like this from scratch was that we took the time to look at everyone um, around what they were doing and what's hygiene and what's expected and not expected. And being a brand that has traditionally zagged, uh, away from most others in industry, we've created this membership program, which is going to be... Which is, by the way, not a loyalty program, right, Michael? It's not a loyalty program. You're, you stress that. Yeah, no, that's right. Loyalty, and I use this um, phrase internally, loyalty is very transactional. Membership is about emotional connection and membership is about um, the brand um, that's taking the lead, delivering um, utility, yes, and products for sale, yes, but more importantly, inspiration and entertainment and education and so we're going to be rewarding surfers for surfing. When you surf, um, we've got telemetry device, which will track your surf, your duration, your size of wave, your length of wave, your speed of wave, and we'll be um, giving people points for surfing, which can be redeemed online or in-store. Um, so it's a it's a program with a difference. There's many layers to it, but that's the key proposition and points when you surf and or shop at, at Ripcurl. And just out of interest, uh, Michael, how do you get um, your global community to um, tap into the tech for them to do this? What's the scenario there in terms of um, the devices? It sort of almost like a, it's, it's a, a Strava or something equivalent, right? Yeah, I mean we we call it surfing Strava internally. Just it's a shortcut to um, explain the the concept to people. But interestingly, in 2013, 2014, Rip Curl introduced what was called the search GPS watch, which allowed surfers to, to track their surfing. And at the same time, that was accompanied with an iOS app. And we haven't invested heavily or paid a super amount of attention to it over the last few years, but we've sold many thousands of units. And many- We nearly got the number then, didn't we? I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> um, many thousands of units. Should we say tens of thousands, Michael? Yeah, tens of thousands of, of units around the world. And People have logged in and downloaded the app and tracked their surfs and um, compared themselves to their friends, much like a Strava proposition. And actually, we're really excited because we're partnering with VML Weiner, who are a leader in digital sort of technology and marketing smarts to reinvent this, reimagine it um, in line with where the market's gone. So we've got terrific history um, and we've got a lot of data, but we're going to take this to the whole, to a whole nother level to complement the launch of this program. I think you said that, you know, it's a bit surprising that a community like surfing, there's nothing formal that's combined or connected them other than the informal, you know, discussion and meets on the beaches, on the sets and so forth. Why has that not happened from any surf brand? And how is this going to connect people like you want in in, in an emotional way? I've got the tech part of it. How does it go deeper than a Lordy program? And why hasn't it happened before? Yeah, so I'll go to the second question first because I think it's going to be easy to answer. But yeah, yes. again, being relative newbie to the industry, but um, 
I think importantly what brands need to do, regardless of industry or category or age of brand, life stage of brand, we need to deliver inspiration. We need to provide education. We need to entertain. We do, We need to deliver content beyond the sell um, and exclusively sending product messages to people who are kind enough to share their first-party data with us. I mean, there's no question that this is a play by us to gather um, first-party data because that enables personalization. And we all get sick of the spam. We get sick of the batch and blast communications from brands. And what this allows us to do if we enrich the data as we will through the process of acquisition, we'll be able to genuinely personalise communications to you, Paul, or to you, Ali, and just send you stuff which you're most interested in as opposed to just a sales message at a, at a batch and blast level. Um, it does look like that it, it sort of, as much as we of talking outside demographics, this, this is going to go to the younger surfing set than maybe the older set. And how's the older surfers going to go with it? I think we talked about maybe they'll get a bit salty with all this um, this new tech coming in, but is it actually aimed at, at the entire age and community of surfing or do you think it's going to land with a certain part? Yeah, I think this is where Ali's point around demography being less important nowadays and just passion points and values being, being the, the most powerful thing to tap into. Interestingly, um, those surfers which are most engaged with our search GPS proposition as a standalone product are sort of 40 plus and male dominated. And so th- therein lies a challenge for us to ensure that whatever we do in terms of execution goes younger, but also stays true to the older Solvia surfing dogs. And I'm, I'm a bit of a nerdy cyclist myself and I actually think there's terrific parallel between where the cycling industry has been and where it's got to now. I recall 10, 15 years ago, the sort of device that the um, the older veteran hardcore cyclists were using was simply based upon speed and cadence, whereas now it's just advanced and it's become so sophisticated around what outputs and um, speed and cadence and heart rate and calories and all those sorts of things. And so the market shifted, but I think the tribe has shifted with it as well. I mean, it's, it's just driven higher levels of engagement and um, and experience. Um, and if Rip Curl can be at the forefront of that within the surfing industry, I guess that's that's a really good thing. What I really liked about it in our previous conversation too, Scotty, is that you, you talked about showing up for work one day where you're early in the, early in the gig at uh, Rip Curl and no one was there. And in fact, they were living what they, they live, they live what they talk. They'd all gone out because the sets were on and it was too good not to give up the surf during the day. I love that. It's really like, that's living the dream, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really awesome culture. We had t- a two-day off-site last week where the sort of 35 leaders in the organisation at Global Headquarters here in Torquay went, went off and, and, and just hung out quite literally. There was some there was some formality to the to the two days, but it was just about connection. And um, it is a really amazing culture. And as I said before, the two founders that, that built the business, the reason they, they built the business was to allow them to um, or enable a lifestyle of surfing and and searching. So our brand DNA is built out of the search. So a concept which is about exploration and, and discovery in the ocean and the outdoors up up to the mountains even. And that plays true. As you said, in my first or second week at work here, I rocked into a meeting room which should have had 20 people in it and there was one person who was in the room who looked at me weirdly because I, I actually wasn't out in the wave with everyone else. So um, right. And that's... That's the truth. Like that's that's how we operate here, and it's um it's pretty pretty awesome to be here. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Ali, just talk through some of you. You've got a, a big consumer brand index called BAV that the group does. Talk us through what's coming through on that and how it relates to the tribes that and the surfers that, um, that Michael's been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, BAV is WPP's proprietary data set. So WPP, kind of our mothership, if you like. It's actually called Brand Asset Valuator. In true Aussie style, we just shorten it to BAV. BAV, mate. Yeah, BAV, exactly. I've yeah. tried BAVO and it hasn't caught no, on. I don't, but, um, I don't mind BAVO. <laughs> um, so BAV, there's three things I say about it, right? It's big, it's backed by Brainiacs, and it's been around a long time. So it's a really big annual study. Last year, we spoke to upwards of 14,000 Australian consumers. It's been around a long time, 28 years, and we're asking the same questions year after year. So this is so you a, got a trend line, right? Exactly. So mm. it's a longitudinal data set, which is really powerful and valuable. Mm. And it's backed by Brainiac. So there's people at like Columbia University, far smarter than the likes of me, who are making sure that this is kind of statistically Robust valid. And, yeah, yeah, all yeah. that, all that good stuff. And I think, look, what's really useful about BAV is that yes, it's um people's attitudes to brands, but it's also speaks a lot to behavior. And it really helps us look at kind of what is the culture of the brandscape in a particular market and kind of how are people connecting with brands? I think that was a really good point Scotty made. You know, how are we connecting across our passion points, across our tribes, across our values with the brands that are available to us? And like what's kind of standing out to people? And look, I think um, something that has come up a lot recently, there was a stat last year. So 91% of Australian consumers want brands to be a positive influence that supports the public good. Right. So you go, great, like 91%, brilliant. But the reason for that is that we are all lazy humans and we can't be asked to do that work ourselves. Do it ourselves, yeah, so, so get we someone want, else to do it. Exactly, we want brands to do it for us. So there's a really interesting thing called the say-do gap. Mm. So nine in 10 people want to live sustainably. That's our 90% who want brands to help them out. Just 16% change their behavior. Right. So right. that's from a recent Kantar study. And you can see there the gap between what we're saying what we're doing mm. and the hard work that we want brands to do on our behalf. Mm. Which is a perfect segue really into Anthony because um, Anthony, most surfers will use toothpaste, we hope, but uh, you've got a very different set of challenges to uh, Michael um, when you're taking a leadership position in around sustainable packaging. And this is hot, it's really interesting The say-do gap. I'm intrigued to hear what you've got about, uh, what it's got to say about this. But there are lots of hurdles to jump for you in, uh, at Colgate and what you're doing with your with your sustainable packaging initiative, um, which ranges from actually getting consumer education and buy into this to the massive changes you need to get through the supply chain, right? And, and I think uh, you and your marketing team are at the front end of this, um, even in the supply chain issue. So just tell us a bit about what you're up to at Colgate uh, Palmolive on, on your sustainable initiatives and, and how that's going, how you're going to land that with both your customers and consumers and how you land it with your supply chain. There's a whole big thing that's really interesting. Um, and welcome, Anthony. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Um, yeah, look, we're building the Colgate equity and trying to bring to life the positioning that it has, which is all based around optimism or optimism in action. That's probably one of the most important objectives my team has at the moment. One of the ways that we're doing that is through actually a partnership that we have with the AFL, where we're telling stories about uh, from a fan's point of view or a player's point of view, or even volunteers at different levels who are smiling strong and really demonstrating this sort of optimism. But another way to your point that we're, we're trying to build the equity and showing our optimism in action is through building our sustainability credentials with everybody. And it is, we know that sustainability, it's a value that people have. It spans across age groups and income levels. We are looking to, I guess, engage people that are younger, Gen Z, dare I say, 
Um, but it is a it is a value that, uh, as we've mentioned, spans across age and, and income levels, etc. We we know that we've got a problem with the planet. It's a big problem, uh, and obviously, uh, big packaged uh, manufacturer or manufacturers of packaged goods, we're part of that problem. At Colgate, we're in more homes across the world than any other brand, so just under sixty five percent household penetration globally. That is, is it? Globally, yeah, Crikey, and, and in right. Australia it would be higher. Um, so we've got a huge opportunity to to make a big difference. And if you think about plastics, packaging, pollution, carbon footprint, all these sorts of things are asking questions about what sustainable industry is and what a sustainable brand is. And, and we're very motivated to find the answers to those questions. Twelve months ago, we started selling our first recyclable toothpaste tubes in Australia took about five years of, of R&D, very complicated to, to remove the problematic materials from that. Just out of interest, Anthony, how, how many tubes do we churn through in a, in a year in Australia? Have we got a number there that, you know, either at an industry market level or, or Colgate level? What, what are the numbers there? Yeah, well, we, we sell about 50 million tubes right. every year. So it's a huge amount. And mm. um, at the moment, 80% of that, of that 50 million is recyclable coming from the shelves in, you know, the various retailers. And by the start of next year, it should be, should be 100%. And what was that, say, three or four years ago? Yeah, it started 12 months ago. Um, okay, so within 12 months, you've got to an 80% recycled, recyclable tube. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and normally, you know, we want to keep that sort of innovation for ourselves. But when we launched the recyclable tube, we actually made it open source. So we felt that it was something that we should be sharing more broadly with the industry, we shared it with retail partners, broader industry competitors. And what we know since launch, the four major global toothpaste companies have all committed to recyclable tubes. So from our, our change, we're, we're seeing, you know, and we've got good critical mass, we're seeing even more uptake of that as well as we move forward. So it's it's been really pleasing. So you've you've got your early uh, benchmark achieved, which is you know moving to near majority, another twenty percent to go. But you do have a big challenge ahead of you now, right? Which is going back to almost the say do gap, behavioural change. You've now got to get your customers, your consumers, to do something different with the tube, and you've got to get the supply chain to do something different with the tube as well. Talk us through that and and what the challenge is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all, <laughs> to your point, it's all well and good to have something that's recyclable, but the, the real question is, is it actually going to be recycled? And, and more to the point for us was, who's going to lead that work to ensure it will be? And, you know, we spoke about it before, it is a little bit the say-do gap, but from an organisational perspective. So in the early stages of our journey, we had brand managers going out to materials recycling facilities with our packaging manager to actually try and validate if the, the recyclable tubes that we developed were actually big enough or could be picked up by the, the automated sorting uh, mechanisms on the conveyor belts that are whizzing by. So something, you know, I guess not really traditional marketing work, but the team were really energised by the end goal and learning about a different aspect. Well, to be fair, Anthony, it, it does bring in the four Ps, doesn't it, um, of marketing in its purest sense, which is, you know, there's product in there, um, which is what you're, you're developing. So anyway, it's a side but it, it's actually good marketing, really. Absolutely. And it is, it's, it, it's important because that's really where you're making an impact, right? There, there's much more to recycling than just making something that's able to be recycled. You actually have to actually get it into the system. So, you know, we've learned a lot in our journey. We, we've learned that waste collection in, in Australia is a very complicated and fragmented industry. 
We know, you know, legislation varies from state to territory. It's it's very, very complicated, but we're now working um, with all of the 200 or so material um, recovery centres to start that process of, you know, building momentum and adoption and acceptance of these recycled, recyclable tubes at these facilities. So it's a, it's a long journey. Yeah, so you've got to get them to get their process changed so the tube no longer goes into the plastic bit, it goes into the recycling bit, and that's the infrastructure that you're, you're challenged with there, right? Yep, absolutely. And then, I guess, and then I guess the third stage is educating people right. and getting them to, to you know, recognise that it now is recyclable, putting it into the correct bin and, and you know, making that process happen. And that's going to come about by how? How are you going to do that? Um, I think you mentioned maybe on packaging, but well, two things. How are you going to get them to change their behaviour? And the second thing is that initiative that you're taking, which is, you know, a goodwill gesture for the planet and a necessary one, is it landing with your key tribe, if you like, and that they recognise that, oh, this is a shift and Colgate's doing something different here that's better. Is that landing yet? It's starting to. We've got a big uh, program to communicate at the moment from shelf. So all of the, the packaging communicates the recyclability of the tubes and how to, how to get it recycled. All of the communication at shelf, our owned assets. We've started a campaign in, uh, in the back half of this year, which is communicating, uh, firstly, the, the fact that the tubes are now recyclable but also uh, talking more to the younger tribes that we spoke about before about um, how to recycle things and, and sort of really engaging them in that sort of area. So it's just starting, but I, I have to say it's a long journey. It really is a mm. long journey and uh, it, it's going to take some time. Ali, um, going to the data here, you know, we we're back to the say-do gap. Will people do this, right? So we 90% want to or say they want to. 16%, I think you said, will do it. Uh, if you've got something like a Colgate initiative um, where they actually do have to change the behaviour, it's pretty easy. They, they can still be lazy. It's just one lid, different coloured bin to the other. Um, but will they? I think they will. But what we're really seeing through all different types of data is that this is really a long game. So habit is one of the most powerful forces that acts on us all the time. I mean, yes, it's objectively easy to stop putting something in one bin and put it in another bin, but actually getting people to do that it is a long-term process. Um, so I think there's that part of it. I mean, the data suggests, like, for example, there's a study that goes along with BAV that said 50% of people will say, and this is particularly Gen Z, will say that they check whether something aligns to their values before they buy it. Mm. So this is particularly in the fashion category, right? So they're, they're saying, I'm going to check that before I buy it. That doesn't mean, obviously, that they act on it. And when we compare that data back with BAV itself and look at what people actually have bought, Actual purchases are still driven by, is this on trend? And it does it represent good value. Right, right? so it's not the primary value. <laughs> it's not yet. It's not yet. But I think what we're seeing is that people are starting to store in their mental availability for a particular brand, like in the image in their head, which we know is how brands grow. Like mm-hmm. What brands are aiming to do all the time is grow that mental availability. Well, we know that people are starting to store up in their minds what they are seeing brands deliver in terms of values. And in terms of kind of things like sustainability um, through the supply chain, et cetera. So maybe we're not going to quite see the the kind of outcomes of that right now, but it is definitely an increasingly powerful force. And I think especially in terms of what people want from what they experience as well as from what they buy. Scotty, just, just out of interest, with uh, Rip Curl and the products that you are manufacturing and selling, 
do you have some, I guess, some sustainable cotton initiatives or all those sort of um, alternatives. Um, do you see the, the surfing tribe globally moving that way uh, slowly, like Ali's talking, or is there factions within it, if you like, that are more aligned that way than elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, we are we're embracing the the need to evolve and evolve and evolve as quickly as as we can. Um, our our ambition is to protect and respect the planet, uh, and so um, we're making every effort at every point of the supply chain and manufacturing process to to do better. Uh, we're not perfect, and we acknowledge that. And when you look at wetsuits, you know, wetsuits as landfill as is not cool. Um, and off the back of that, we've actually just launched a global wetsuit recycling program where wetsuits are, are shredded down and used um, in kids' playgrounds just to, I guess, make contribution back to society. But, yeah, we, we're not where we need to be, but we've got um, great ambition to, to get better and do that quickly. Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, you've got an initiative that, that sort of helps alleviate a, a problem, but you've got to get behavioural change there too. You've got to get the, the surfer dudes to actually put their wetsuits into a recycling option, right? So that's another behavioural challenge you've got in front of you. Yeah, it is. But given that, um, that the passion and love for um, beach, beach and ocean and, and planet, which is a pretty common trait amongst surfers globally, uh, it's not that great a leap for us to um, right. facilitate and enable. We're seeing great results already in terms of volumes coming back to us, which is just terrific. Okay. So where do, where do these, you know, hip surfers put their uh, wetsuits? Where do they take them to get them recycled? Is it is it the stores or what happens? Yeah, really simple process. Um, they drop them into our stores um, and at different intervals, um, the stores send them into a central location and they're picked up by a group called TerraCycle who take, take them away and, and get rid of them. And for those um, consumers who or people or surfers that don't live near our stores, you can just post it into a designated um, PO box um, around the regions around the world and the same same thing occurs. Right, Catherine, you're in a completely different uh, business, you know, uh, travel and tourism versus toothpaste and, and recyclable wetsuits, but you're seeing similar undercurrents, right, uh, in tourism and travel. What people want to do and experience also has links to what we've just been talking about. Um, so what are you seeing um, in the world of travel and tourism and certainly in New South Wales? Because there are the similar undercurrents, right? Absolutely. Thanks for having me as yeah, well, welcome. Paul. Yeah, good to Thank have you. you. Yeah, no, we are seeing certainly a number of different shifts and changes and and off the back of COVID, I think we can all relate to that just real need to get out and just to get out and about, experience something new, feel something new. We saw through some of the research that we do through our brand engagement monitor, this real change and shift of experiences that people are seeking. And so where it used to be very much around, I want to travel for myself and I want to very much more of a selfish travel motivator. What we're seeing now is that consumers or visitors are really trying to find that experience of where they can really sort of bring together their connection with the land or connection with their family and really seeing that shift away from, I want to go and have my own sort of selfish experience, but more to now is around how do I bring, you know, this multi-generational travel how do I see this feeling to be able to escape where I've come from? You know, the I think we've all can relate to the the hours of Netflix and the mm. walks around the blocks, et cetera. So people just want to get out and experience something new. And the drivers and motivators uh, are really quite similar, though, that we have seen over time. You know, people want to unwind. They want to relax. They want to rejuvenate. They want to reconnect. And so we're seeing a lot of that coming through and more so right now. So since we can all travel again and we can get back out and we're seeing that pent up demand really, really increase. The challenge for us now is how do we deliver on that? What is the 
the service levels of the industry is a real challenge. So, but just out of out of interest, the the, the experiences they are seeking are they different? So those underlying triggers that you talk about for wanting to get a break. Is there, are they looking for more things that are down and connected to the earth or sustainability? What, what, is there a difference there? Is there a change in what they're looking for? There is, there is. But fundamentally, you see the drivers and motivators remain the same. You want right. to connect to yourself or connect to your family or reconnect to your family. There is a change or a shift around this whole slow travel. So right. longer, slower, more premium quality time that's spent with your family, your friends, you know, with your, your loved ones. And really getting back to some of these, you know, the nature and and the feeling, nature, wildlife, you know, the wonderful beaches and exploration. So an adventure and trying to find, but it, underlying all of this really is that the common thread is, is around that trying to experience something new. So there's this real adventure mindset of, you know, whether or not your own advent, you know, feeling something new is to just unwind and lie by a beach or your feeling new is that I want to go out and, I don't know, run around a block and, and ski down a mountain, whatever it may be mm. that your new is, that whole experience of trying to find that something new and willing to invest. People are willing to invest more into that, that we're seeing more than what they had in the past. So this whole premium, as I mentioned, slow travel, this premium mm. sort of quality time spent together and those is almost like money can't buy experience. That that whole slow travel and a premium experience you're talking about, Catherine, does it again uh, avoid the the old demographics trap and the tribe goes across different um, age groups and, and socioeconomic sets? Is it sort of carrying across the whole lot? Yeah, a lot of the, the drivers and motivators remain largely the same. So, you know, I want to go and unwind. I want to relax. I want to find you know, the travel intention, I want to find, you know, what are, there's lots of things to do. Or those things remain fundamentally the same across all the different demographics and different market segments. Um, you know, obviously your grey nomads are looking for maybe a slightly different type of a right. longer travel period. You see your solo travellers, they, you know, may want to get off the beaten track. The families are looking for those family types of holidays where the kids can also have a good time. But under, you know, fundamentally, those drivers and motivators largely remain the same across a lot of the market segments. Now, the big challenge you've got is a supply issue. That's right. What's yeah. happening there? Yeah. So if we look at, you know, the tourism industry in New South Wales, it's made up of 107,000 businesses. 95% of those are small businesses. So they're the, you know, one to two or less, certainly less than 19 um, people in those businesses. If you think where we were pre-COVID, the, the visitor economy was really made up in New South Wales around 44 bill or so. Right. That shrunk down to about 22 bill. Wow, um, half. So almost mm. half, yeah. Mm. So if you look at those numbers, the industry certainly across some of the agritourism businesses has certainly shrunk. It's been totally decimated. And so now as we've started to rebuild, we've started to come back, the industry has started to recover. We're seeing that this whole supply well, the issue around, you know, labour shortages and, right. and and job skills, et cetera, is really, really trying. And you don't have to look far to see see that through the queues at the airports, to see that through, despite the fact that when we look on Insta, most of our friends, and I don't know about you guys, but certainly have been around Europe and you're seeing on your Insta feeds, everyone's out and about, but certainly the challenges remain very much the same. You know, there's, you know, security coming back through through the airports, but equally then through to some of the challenges in in tourism and hospitality and getting staff to be able to service. Whilst the industry may be getting closer to capacity, they're only being able to service a certain level because we haven't got the staff to be able to meet that full, you know, get mm. back up to that 100% capacity. Um, so it's, it's a real, real challenge for, across the entire tourism industry. So and it's a no- challenge for marketing. So what are you doing? What do you do when you've got a supply you know, crimp? 
Well, that's it. I mean, how do you deliver, you know, we're, we're creating this brand promise of, you know, for, for Destination New South Wales is very much, you know, get out there and our whole new brand positioning around feel new, which is very much around this insight around not what you can do at a destination, but how it makes you feel. And so how do you deliver on that promise when we're promoting, we're marketing, we're, we're encouraging visitors to come internationally. So we're incentivizing, you know, from, from the New South Wales government as um, investing a significant amount into what's coming out to, for airlines to be able to incentivize them to be able to increase their capacity right. and their seats and services. And then when they come in, you know, like it's how do you make sure you're delivering on what that demand is. And so there's a real supply demand um, challenge for the industry at the moment where, you know, the pent up demand is really high, but this supply, we just can't, we can't really keep up. So yeah, and it it's can really... and potentially it's a brand damage um, risk, isn't it? Because if you, the expectations don't want to go somewhere, but they can't get there or the, the products or the services, the, the destinations aren't, aren't there, that there's a gap. True, true. And I mean, this is just exacerbated through floods, fire, mm, yeah, you know, and in yeah. the Northern Rivers, obviously tragic for some of those regions. And, you know, when they're looking at how we market to that, you know, there's also this, you know, sometimes a, a, a perception that, oh, well, the whole of Northern Rivers is closed. And it's like, well, actually, no. So there, our job then right. is to be able to say we're open for businesses, tourism businesses are open for business and really try and shift that perception as like, well, I can't go through that go to that entire region, our role is then to say, actually, no, there are certain areas and, and the regions and locations yeah. of where you mm. can travel and there's, because that's where what the, these businesses, back to my earlier point, you know, 95% of them are small, medium enterprises. They just don't have the resources. They don't have the budget mm. to be able to reach that mass audience and tell their story that we're open for business. Um, and so that's our job to really try and encourage, incentivize and raise the awareness that there are pockets that are needing business and trying to attract that that new visitor or the repeat visitor back into into those specific regions. Ali, slow travel, premium experiences. Uh, how does that all fit in with the BAV data that's coming through? The BAVO data. BAVO. BAVO. Bravo. <laughs> um, fits in very closely, actually. Um, one of the things that BAV lets us track is actually Australia and New South Wales and different states as brands. So we're able to look at not only how Australian consumers feel about those, but how international different markets mm. feel about those too. And something that we've seen over the past, like it's been increasing over the past few years, but we've really seen it during COVID is Australia's reputation as kind of being a place of heritage and culture. Like we've always had definitely that reputation for kind of, you know, adventure and the outdoor life and things. But I think um, that's one of the really interesting things. And when I hear Catherine talk about kind of slow travel and the idea of experiences that are maybe maybe connect in a different way, I guess, um, seeing that reputation grow and gaining on heritage and like what heritage can mean. You know, it doesn't just mean museums and the built environment to people anymore. It means kind of connecting with, you know, the 60,000 year old culture that we've got. Mm. Um, so I think that's a really interesting shift that to me kind of backs up um, some of the things that Catherine's spoken about. Mm, it's great. Michael, I might start with you first. Um, in terms of two to three key watchouts for you for the next 12 months as you build out your big membership, not loyalty program with the Surfer Dudes. One of the key things that we've found, um, and I've probably found just, just through my career, is that you need to start inside and work your way out. You just can't flick a switch um, and apply and execute straight out to the marketplace. And so we've spent an inordinate amount of time training, educating um, our staff, our crew, people in our stores um, about what we're doing and, and why we're doing it, the meaning behind it, the purpose behind it, and how it connects back into our purpose. So that's 
been a really big focus for us. And unless we get that right, it just won't won't work. Mm. Not so much to watch out for the next twelve months. More so just a, a heads up for anyone contemplating the scale and type of program that we've just developed. It, it's been two and a half years in the making. You, when you combine the, the research required, the consumer understanding that's necessary, but then also the setup of Martech and TechStack um, in a quality integrated way, it, it takes time and it takes patience and you just can't rush it. Have you landed on your TechStack now? You're, you're full bore into that? Yeah, we are. We, um, we're in the process of um, migration at the moment. And, um, and where have you gone out of interest? Who, who have you gone with? Oh, there's a range of different vendors which are all connecting together in some sort of Frankenstein setup. <laughs> yes, I love it. Good one. Anthony, um, uh, Anthony, for you, um, two to three key watchouts for your program the next year or so. Yeah, two to three watchouts for sustainability for us. Probably the first one being bold. We still really need to focus on making a difference, uh, closing our own say-do gaps that we mentioned before and asking the question around, you know, what drives scale now, because it really the time is now for the, the work to come into market. The second one, collaboration. Uh, we need to really focus on building um, internal and external partners, whether it's the uh, MRFs, the industry groups, retailers. Uh, we can't do it by ourselves. We need to build these partnerships. So that's a really key watch out for us. Is there openness there or is there some resistance in court in some parts or it's just getting the process going? Just getting the process going. It's open doors. I mean, particularly from a retailer yeah. point of view, as right. soon as this topic comes up, it's, there's a lot of energy behind it. It's, you know, but it's, so it's more about progress over perfection. We've just got to get going to your point. So, yeah, yeah. but collaboration, absolutely a big watch out. And then the last one, a big topic, obviously, is costs. At the moment, margins are being squeezed and, you know, a lot mm. of sustainability initiatives can add cost. But, uh, you know, from our point of view, we need to do what's right. So, um, you know, we need to keep pushing forward with this with this strategic agenda. Good call. Catherine, for you, um, two to three watch outs for you in, in the wonderful travel industry. Like, hopefully it's coming back. Yeah, yeah, us too. No, it certainly is. It, it is coming back. And I think for us very much the focus is twofold, one around how do we collaborate, work with industry to really grow that supply, help educate, train, work on product development, really enhancing that um, experience and through marketing support to be able to really get some of those industries and those tourism operators back on their feet and firing on all cylinders. So we're back up to that 100% uh, capacity. So that's really a core focus for us. How do we support the industry Second fold is around then the visitors. So how are we encouraging them to be able to get back out and really just into our own backyard? You know, New South Wales has amazing experiences. You know, people will say we need to go to the rock and the reef and we look at it and say, well, actually, we've got everything in New South Wales backyard. We've got the red dirt. We've got the beaches. We've got the beautiful rainforests and and bush. And then equally, we've got this wonderful abundance of nature, uh, sorry, culture and arts and and all of these events, the programs that are coming up are some of the key events are just massive. South by Southwest, actually, a shameless mm. plug there for that coming through. Um, mm. Next year, Sydney World Pride. Like, I mean, some global events on the in Sydney and New South Wales stage. And so really excited to, and just really trying to encourage those New South Welsh people and also interstate just to come and have a holiday in our own backyard. It's just got so much to offer. And our job really is very much to how do we 
identify what are some of those key uh, experiences that all of those different market segments are seeking and searching for and just trying to really just drive it home. We've got everything that you possibly can to experience well, here in we, New South Wales. Well, how about Wales. we try and help drive one of those home? Because I know South by Southwest will be of great interest to, the, to my audience. Absolutely. So quick, quick uh, lowdown on what's going on there. Yeah, so 2023 coming out uh, next year, uh, first time in 36 years. It's outside of Austin, Texas, which is a major, major coup for Sydney. So South by Southwest Sydney lineups coming up, and there are going to be a number of announcements that are coming up soon with with regards to the program. But I just encourage everyone out there who's listening to this is, you know, get involved. There's, this is a massive part mm. for our industry, for marketing, for media, for tech, and it's going to really bring Sydney to the stage across all our different types of all the different types of gaming, everything, theatre, sports, you know, everything that you could possibly think about. So really exciting time for Sydney and a huge amount of work to get there, but really excited to be hosting that. Super interesting. Michael, you've got a couple of thoughts there? Um, more so a question. If there are any familles on offer, I'm more than happy to take them up. Yeah. <laughs> nice work. <laughs> yes, we'll bring you board and um, we might find a pool somewhere for you to have a, have a paddle, Michael. Um, Ali, in, in the final wrap-up here, um, two to three watchouts for, you know, the industry at large, I guess, and, and your thoughts. Absolutely. So two main watchouts. Underestimate human behaviour at your peril. Like we've spoken a lot today about closing the say-do gap and there's so much we can do and so much that we know about to help us do that. But like the human brain is specifically designed to get hooked on habit. And I think we can sometimes... We talk a good talk and it's harder to actually do the work, as Anthony referred to. The second one I'd say is underestimate connection at your peril as well. I mean, I think a lot of the themes we've spoken about today are how different groups of people connect. And it's not just demographics. It is kind of tribes. It is passion points. It is values. And the way that different marketers, different companies, different groups can work together, I think is really powerful too. Hey, good stuff. So uh, Ali Tilling, Michael Scott, Anthony Cruz, Catherine Illy, fantastic conversation, really interesting. And um, look, we look forward to catching up I really um, in a few months' time to see how all these initiatives are going because there's, there's some fascinating stuff in there. Stay safe and um, get back to your day jobs. Thanks for joining. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.